Hi, this is Don King, editor of the Collected Poems of C.S. Lewis, a critical edition, and you're listening to Pints with Jack. The first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship, from a corkscrew to a cathedral, is to know what it is, what it was intended to do, and how it is meant to be used. After that has been discovered, the temperance reformer may decide that the corkscrew was made for a bad purpose, and the communists may think the same about the cathedral. But such questions come later. The first thing is to understand the object before you. As long as you think that the corkscrew was meant for opening tins or the cathedral for entertaining tourists, you can say nothing to the purpose about them. The first thing the reader needs to know about Paradise Lost is what Milton meant it to be. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 34. Jack's Bookshelf, John Milton. After Hours with Graham Donaldson. Welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. This month, we're working through Jack's bookshelf, looking at the authors and the books which shaped the life and writing of C.S. Lewis. In the last episode, we considered Shakespeare, and today we move on to John Milton. And today, I'm joined by a returning guest, Graham Donaldson. Graham Donaldson has been sneaking literature into the minds of his students since 2011. He watches Project Runway with his wife, Amanda, wears kimonos, she insists they're called yakatas, or summer kimonos, at home. Still a Canadian at heart, Graham watches hockey when he isn't reading. And he is the co-host of the wonderful podcast, Classical Stuff You Should Know. Graham Donaldson, welcome to Pints with Jack, again. <laughs> hey, thanks, thanks for having me. This is great. And uh, I just want to clarify that it's my wife that wears the kimonos. <laughs> She a habit she picked up when we had a trip to Japan uh, about ten years ago. So, <laughs> don't want to put any weird images in the minds of your listeners. <laughs> that grammar was ambiguous. I thought purposefully. <laughs> <laughs> I blame AJ on that one. He wrote that, I think. <laughs> well, what have you been up to since we last recorded together? Oh man, I literally today another school year in the books. I had my my seniors write their last exam, take their last exam. And uh, it's sitting there on my on my to do pile over there, looking at me, wanting me to grade it, and I'm ignoring it. But I mean, that's that's basically been it. Is another so I, I teach. I'm a high school teacher. I teach uh, at a classical school called Veritas Academy in Austin, Texas. The other guys that we do the podcast with, we we work at the school. And so, yeah, when we're not podcasting, we uh, we're actually like in classroom with 15 year olds teaching them teaching them these works. So that's basically a what I've been doing since last time we got together. I think maybe we talked last summer. I can't remember. I think it was at least a year ago. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, doing various Texas things, staying hot and <laughs> trying not to have my plants die in the heat and all that stuff. Uh, come to Wisconsin. We've had plenty of wetness recently. Well, today I am enjoying a, a beer. It's a honey brown ale called Bumble Bear. Well, there you go. I've got um, not so great teacher's coffee from the break room downstairs. So that's what I'm enjoying. Grit. Warm grit. Cheers. Yes, that's right. So the last time you were on the show, we had a video chat and we were talking afterwards and you mentioned your love for Milton and Milton was one of the people who influenced C.S. Lewis. And I told you just before we hit record that prior to digging into Lewis, I think I could have told you that Milton wrote Paradise Lost but I don't think I could have told you really anything else. So, Milton 101, who was he? When did he live? 
Yeah. What sort of world was he born into? Yeah, and we'll get to my own personal views on it. You said I love him. I don't know if I love him. I don't know how I feel about Milton. But you speak enthusiastically about him. That's good enough. Yes. Um, so John Milton, yes. So he, English poet, um, 17th century. So it's the 1600s, 1608, 1674, pretty tumultuous time in England. This is the Civil War era. This is where about a generation and a half, two generations into the Reformation. So all the old order of the medieval order is in chaos. And um, this is the world that Milton's in. Wealthy family, well-educated, um, has your sort of quintessential um, late Middle Ages, early Renaissance education in the classics, knows his Greek, knows his Latin, and um, but is also in this world of sort of tumultuous politics. You've got um, the Reformation, which is basically called into question the entire order of the Middle Ages, of the world that everybody knew, and everyone's trying to figure out, okay, now what do we do? How do we sort of rebuild this world? So Milton, he writes, he, he, so he's a poet, um, and he, yeah, uh, his most famous work by far is Paradise Lost. It's an epic poem, quite literally. So it's an epic in the 12 books that the Iliad is an epic, that the Odyssey is an epic. It's an epic poem on the fall of mankind, uh, how Satan rebels against God and how he goes down uh, to hell, recruits a bunch of demons, goes to earth, tempts mankind to sin. And then it's the the story of, of Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden. So, you know, we'll, we'll definitely get into uh, uh, Paradise Lost and C.S. Lewis because that is by far the book that influences Lewis the most. So much so that Lewis has written a, a very wonderful intro to Paradise Lost. But other things that uh, Milton was into, um, he wrote a very boring, I must say, a treatise on education. <laughs> it's called On Education. In it, he is basically, if you've ever worked in education, every so often you get these books that are like the 10 habits of how to teach your kid or, you know, uh, turn your classroom into a, a discovery adventure place. And there's like this entire genre of these like self-help education books. And Milton's On Education is kind of one of these for the Renaissance. In it, he, he sort of critiques the medieval clerical education that he got as a, as a child. And then he kind of offers up his own version of what education should be. And it, and it quite literally has a chapter entitled, like, it's got to be fun or kids aren't going to do it. It's not <laughs> called that, but that's essentially what he says. So he's got a book on education. Um, he has a four part or sorry, a four book poem with Paradise Lost called Paradise Regained, which is not as good as Paradise Lost. I've never, that one I've never read. Everyone who I've ever talked to about Milton or anything, they're like, yeah, Paradise Regained's not very good. Um, I'm pretty sure that's Satan and the temptation of Christ uh, is what he's doing in Paradise Regained. And Milton had a bunch of political tracks. Um, he was strangely interested in writing about divorce. So he has a lot of books about divorce. Um, and is that something that changes now that we have this Protestant Reformation? And so he's, he's kind of a a pretty reactionary, rebellious guy, um, or at least that's how he's often characterized when you're studying him. Uh, that's probably unfair to boil him down to, to being um, sort of this rebellious person. And that's sort of actually how I got into Milton was when, when he's taught, he's often taught as this guy like, 
you know, kind of blowing up the hierarchies and, <laughs> and going after the old order of the Catholic Church. And, and isn't he this sort of modern figure of rebel, rebellion? And Lewis kind of dismantles that reading of, of Milton when he mm. talks about him. But anyway, so that that is kind of your, your 30,000 foot view of Milton. He's, yeah, well-educated guy. Uh, um, and he's kind of standing in this time in English history between this old order imperium and this new choose your own adventure world of, of, uh, the enlightenment. Hmm. And when did you first come across him? Was all of this a result of you having to inspire young minds or, <laughs> or was it from personal study? Yeah. So I did an undergraduate, um, at the university of Toronto and I basically somehow found my way into doing lots of poetry classes. I love poetry. I really enjoyed my romanticism unit that I had. Wordsworth, Coleridge, the teacher even put Yeats in there. In that poetry unit, Milton made its way into the unit, which is really bizarre because Milton is a good 200 years before sort of English romanticism. Hmm. So before Wordsworth wrote Tintern Abbey, 200 years earlier is, 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 um, is Milton. And, you know, when you're a young undergraduate, you don't know anything. So you're just, your teacher's like, here's a course on romanticism. We're going to start with John Milton. You're like, okay, John Milton started romanticism. You write in your notebook. And the reason for it, why they put Milton in there is because they held up, or at least the, the, the canonical read, I don't know if it's canonical, but the big reading of Milton as modern people is Satan is this hero in Paradise Lost. And he's this sort of modern man, romantic hero, owning his own identity, raging against against uh, the established order. And this is what it means to be modern people. And then that gets kind of shoehorned into uh, into romanticism. So I got into reading Paradise Lost for the first time in the context of reading him as a romantic or reading him as a companion to the romantic canon. Yeah, I, I don't think I enjoyed him maybe in undergrad. I read it, but I don't, I, it, we, we didn't spend much time. It, it essentially boiled down to, isn't Satan cool? And then we <laughs> moved on to Wordsworth and Coleridge. Um, and it wasn't until I got to Lewis's preface to Paradise Lost that I realized, wait a minute, there is there is an intellectual war going on regarding Milton and also just that's in this background of the classical world and the romantic world kind of coming to heads in, in literary analysis. And Lewis is not the center of it, but he is on a side. Yeah. So when I got to a preface to Paradise Lost, I, I was like, wait, this is, this is a completely different reading of Milton. And you just realize I'm getting into a into a world and a debate that I didn't even know existed. Um, so yeah, that's how I got into it was I was a lover of Lewis, read the Nardy books, all that stuff growing up. And then when I realized he had written this intro to Par Paradise Lost and I read it, and I was like, this is nothing like I was taught. This is not, this is a totally different way of thinking about this book. Hmm. And do you teach it to your students? And I teach it to my 10th graders. Yeah. So um, we do uh, probably about, I'd say about half of it. There's there's a good half that we don't uh, that we don't read. It's challenging, so it's uh, we maybe we can talk about that sort of as the how do you get into this? But it is challenging pro or challenging pro poetry. So yeah, so now I've taught Paradise Lost for eleven years to um, fifteen year olds every and um, 
and actually, and, uh, yeah, and their exam is sitting on that desk staring at me. <laughs> well, we'll speak about Milton's influence on Lewis in a little bit, but what were his influences? What influenced Milton as he wrote? Yeah. So I was, as we sort of mentioned earlier, Milton's coming at that, that crossroad moment in English history and in, in European history and Christian history, where you have the, the Protestant Reformation really gathering steam. So he is predominantly classified as a Puritan. And so he kind of rails against high church in a lot of his writings. Mentioning earlier, his, his big edu- his education was in the classics. So he's after Shakespeare, so clearly would have some Shakespeare influence. He's sort of steeped in all the classics of, of, of ancient Greece and Rome. Apart from that, I'm not enough of a Milton scholar to really know uh, any sort of more than just he kind of had that, like I said, sort of standard clerical, um, later medieval education where you're studying um, basically anything Greek and Roman you can get your hands on. And then Milton decides quite overtly that he wants to write an epic. Much like uh, he wants to write the English Iliad or the English Odyssey or the English Aeneid in our language, in the English language. He's quite famous for it when he does it. Everyone's like, yep, this is a classic. This is amazing. This is going to go down in history forever. Um, so he wasn't this like latter discovered person. But the influence he had on Lewis is, I wouldn't go as far as to say as Lewis loves Milton or is enamored by Milton. Um, he's actually quite critical of a number of um, technical things that Milton does in Preface to Paradise Lost. That book is is in Milton, oh, sorry, is in Lewis's um, uh, uh, literary side of him, not his sort of popular theology side of him. So uh, the Preface to Paradise Lost is Lewis has two chapters on: is this a primary epic or is a secondary epic, and sort of. Lay readers are going to be like, I don't know, and I don't really care because I don't know what either of those things are. Um, but but Lewis is really um, is trying to redeem a little bit of that romantic reading of Satan and Adam and Eve and, and Milton himself that I think has sort of gotten popular with uh, writers like William Blake and then mm-hmm. uh, a lot of sort of Lewis's more romantic contemporaries. So the influence for Lewis is any educated British schoolboy would, would have memorized passages of it. Uh, they, he probably would have memorized the, the, the prologue uh, or maybe even the famous uh, speech in book 12 where, where Michael sort of sums up why God has allowed the fall to happen. And then you see tons of it in Narnia. Like well, The creation in Magician's Nephew uh, has lots of parallels to Paradise Lost. The first king and queen. Now, it's been a long time since, you'll have to help me on this one. It's been a long time since I've read Magician's Nephew. But the first king and queen in Narnia, he's a he's a taxi cab driver, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's a taxi cab driver. And, and who's his wife? Is it, is it his wife that becomes a queen? Yes, it is. Aslan brings her from Earth. That's right. So that taxi cab driver and his wife in, in uh, The Magician's Nephew, when they are sort of, when Lewis describes them as having this sort of serious solemnity to them when they become the king and queen of Narnia, that is a direct line to Adam and Eve in Paradise Lost. You can just, there's lots of those, of those little parallels from Paradise Lost to, to his Narnia trilogy. Um, and I'm, I'm not as, as well versed on the space trilogy to be able to speak too much into it, but I'm sure your listeners who are 
probably far um, deeper uh, Lewis scholars than I, if they read Paradise Lost, are going to you know see see uh, see Narnia and see the Space Trilogy everywhere. Yeah, particularly I think Paralandra. Mm-hmm. And, and and we're actually going to be doing the magician's nephew in a few weeks now, so oh, wonderful. we'll we'll keep our eyes open. Yeah, something that I know uh, that I haven't done myself is in um, Paradise Lost, um, an angel comes down to Earth to warn Adam that Satan is in the garden, and Adam's like, "That sounds that sounds crazy," uh, but then he goes to the angel, and, and Adam is filled with questions, and he's like, "Hey, what are stars made out of? Uh, how does everything work?" Uh, why does everything move? Do plants like fall in love? Like I fall in love with Eve. And he asks this angel all these questions. And the angel finally says, listen, I'm just going to tell you how God created everything. And then for like two whole books, book six and book seven, the angel Raphael kind of um, uh, sits Adam down and gives him this whole creation narrative. And I've never done it, but maybe this is something that, um, that intrepid readers or listeners would want to do is to look at that creation narrative in Paradise Lost and then go look at Aslan singing Narnia into existence and see if you have any of those parallels because I'm, I'm sure that they're there. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. Very cool. I'm giving homework to your listeners. <laughs> yeah, that's usually my job. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's then talk about getting into Milton. And, uh, sure. Yes, let's, let's draw on uh, all of your teaching experience. So first of all, if someone has never read Milton, would you recommend that they begin with Paradise Lost? Um, yes, not only because it is going, it's not that it's any easier than anything else that he's written, but it is, this may be controversial to say, it's probably the only thing of Milton you're really, uh, a layman's really going to want to read. Unless when you read Paradise Lost, you're like, Hot dang, I love iambic pentameter from the 16th century. I got to read it all. Um, I want that on a t-shirt. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, then you can go and read it. But um, it's worth sort of breaking your teeth on Paradise Lost because that's where you are going to want to camp out. And um, so, yes, it's worth starting with Paradise Lost. Um, like I said, a lot of the other works that he has are sort of these political tracks that are fighting 17th century battles of intellectual battles. And unless you really love that period of history, the time is best spent trying to crack into, into paradise lost. Cause it is, it is difficult prose. I was actually um, going to read the first sentence. This is what I do to my students too. I read them the first full sentence of paradise lost just to give them a little taste as to what they're getting into and probably just to freak them out a little. <laughs> But this is sort of a, a taste for your listeners of like, if you're wanting to get into Paradise Lost, these are the kinds of sentences you're going to get used to. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree, whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden, till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat, sing heavenly muse that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. Or if Sion Hill delight thee more and Silo's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Aeonian mount while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. Sentence one. (laughs) So, And that is what, 15 lines. So it is a, 
and, and Lewis actually spends a lot of time talking about in, in the preface to Paradise Lost, which is definitely worth reading before you pick up Paradise Lost. He spends a lot of time saying, talking about the language and the sentence structure of Milton. And if you heard it, uh, I don't want to bore everybody too much, but if you get into some of the sentences of Milton, sometimes you lose the subject or you may even lose the object of the sentence. And Lewis says this is on purpose. There is an ambiguity in the language of Milton that Milton kind of has on purpose that slowly kind of like enchants you as you listen to it. Or um, uh, there is he Lewis makes a defense for why sort of Milton writes this way. And it's definitely difficult to get into. And uh, my suggestion that I always give to my 10th graders is when you are reading for homework, you read it out loud. Hmm. It's meant to be read out loud. It was meant to be listened to in long Period. So maybe I, I've never audiobooked it because I find those kind of, I don't know, I don't like audiobooks. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's meant to be listened to and it's meant to be read out loud. And it wasn't really until I was teaching it every year and reading large, large sections of it out loud that I began to really love the language and just sort of really understand it um, as, as this sort of audible artifact as opposed to something that's written. It is it is difficult to get into. And you're going to want you, footnotes are your friend. But once you kind of break through the difficulty of the language and get in and, and can kind of like embody these uh, how or really sort of understand the way that Milton is creating sentences, then you've got it. And then and then reading it is I want to say it's easy. You aren't um it is more. It is work to read. This isn't sort of like sitting back by the fire with 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 the book. At least not at, at first. But once you kind of get over that um, that language barrier, uh, it becomes easier. In fact, Lewis even in the in his intro to Paradise Lost says, "If you buy a used copy of Paradise Lost in the bookstore, um, there will be maybe two or three pages." Uh, the first two pages are like marked up with pencil and then the rest of it is empty. He's like, that's because everyone goes into Milton thinking it's going to be poetry. Like you read sort of a nice poem that, um, but it is, it's a cathedral. It, it's, it's, um, uh, there are nooks and crannies and hallways and the whole thing is to be taken in as this one almost overwhelming thing, uh, as opposed to like a chapter book where you, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> so it's, it is a, a hard thing to get into, for sure. Is there a particular book that you would recommend, a particular text? I, I assume that there's a level of translation in the same way with Shakespeare, that you can get different levels of translation. So is there a translation and a book that will give you all of these footnotes to help explain the references? Yeah. The, the, if, you, if you're looking for a, a version of Milton, the best thing you can sort of look for is, the, well, editors kind of have to make a decision. Um, do we present the Milton the way that it was and have no quotation marks? So when characters are talking, it's just we either have an indented line in the poetry or not. Um, or do we have a version where we put in quotation marks when the characters are talking? So the one that I teach out of is the Oxford World Classic. Um, my, and um, it, it has no quotation marks, but it has wonderful, wonderful footnotes. Mm. Um, the Norton is is very good as long as you can find something that's got a that's got uh, healthy footnotes. A lot of people, you know, sort of balk at the lack of quotation marks, but I always tell my students because we have the book that doesn't have quotation marks. 
you kind of figure it out. Like the, there's at least enough of, uh, of um, some other editorial decisions made in the Oxford where they like indent paragraphs when they, when a character is talking. And since when characters talk, they talk for like 250 lines anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're, you'll, you'll probably like five lines in be like, I think, I think Satan's talking. And then you'll go back. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Satan's talking. But you'll want it. You'll want an edition with footnotes. The Norton, the Oxford World Classic. These are the ones that I've used in the past. And yeah. So, given that it's a challenging text, what is it that made it so popular and influential? So, like with any big epic, the content of it is the attraction. It is talking about the biggest question of all. In fact. I know I read you the first sentence, but what Milton, he has these sort of, Milton has these 26 line prologue to it. And I read you the first 15 lines of it, but he ends it by saying, he's asking the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's saying, which is the muse. He's asking the Holy Spirit to inspire him because this is what Milton says he's trying to do. What in me is dark illumine. What is low raise and support. That to the height of this great argument, I may assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men. So this is what Milton is trying to do. He's trying to write an epic that answers the question, why did God allow the fall to happen? If the fall brought in all this pain and death and enmity and suffering, why did God allow it? Um, and Milton is writing a 12-book epic trying to justify God to man, giving a defense of why God allowed this to happen. So it's the first answer to the question, why is this so popular, is that it's, it's trying to answer the biggest question of theodicy. Why sin? Why suffering? Why death? And then the other reason why it was so popular is... Now, the same reason you would go back and read Genesis, like you, you, you want to, when you go back and read the beginning of things, um, uh, you're, you're looking for it to try to give you the answers for uh, for the things that you have today. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 asking that big question. It's asking sort of the biggest fundamental question. And then all of these other little offshoots from that central question, you know, they sort of flow out of that big question. So then what is the role of mankind in regards to the create the cre creation, like oh, is man in control? Uh, what is the relationship between the sexes between Adam and Eve? Milton has a prelapsarian vision of Adam and Eve that gets distorted and destroyed in the fall. These are sort of those fundamental human questions that that um, um, that has made that as soon as it was published, people were like, "This is in the can, like easy." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And did, do you think it actually affected popular theology as a result of oh, the answers that he gives? Yes, for sure. Um, and in probably some ways that have not been quite so good for uh, um, sort of the Christian tradition. Um, one is Milton's kind of a heretic, kind of. Um, <laughs> Lewis says that, yeah, there are things that Milton gets wrong about God. And you really have to go looking for them to find them. So it's not like he's trying to, he's not writing like an Aryan book, right? He's not being like, you know, like Jesus uh, was, was just a man and not God. Like he's not overtly uh, heretical. 
the book itself, its legacy, basically the fandom of the romantic movement, sort of co-opting it and turning it into this, into a very different thing um, is a big part of its legacy, but also um, it is definitely a Puritan and Protestant document for sure. Though the big, one of the big parts that Lewis is critical of it is at the end, Adam is really upset over having brought sin into the world. My bad. And understandably so. <laughs> and um, so much so that God's got to send Michael down to comfort him. And Michael comes and he's like, listen, man, you, yeah, what you did was pretty bad. But I'm going to tell you the entire history of humanity to cheer you up. <laughs> oh, my um, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, Specific and specifically so with pointing to Christ. So he says, mm-hmm. "Here, here is how sin is going to be undone. Here is how the curse that God pronounced at you uh, is going to be unwound." And you get the sort of beautiful sort of presentation of, of Easter. Um, but then the last book is, and then here is how the church plays itself out until the end of history. And that one is definitely like. That's where Milton sort of is at his most puritanical, where he sort of shows his, he lays his uh, denominational cards down. High church Anglicans and Catholics probably don't necessarily like that book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but like, again, Milton, he's, he's really invested in the, the ecumenical battles of his day, which um, aren't the same for us as modern Christians. Like those, those you know, going to war over the homoousia you know, those aren't, those aren't our battles anymore. Um, so definitely Milton has, has that in it. Um, and so it's, um, it's got that, yeah, it's kind of got that Puritan flavor to it. And because of that Puritan flavor, it has invited people to go back and read lots into it and be like, well, here, here's an example of how Milton hates X, Y, and Z. And, and, um, but it's such a, it's such a vast and big sweeping book that, um, pretty hard to sort of nail down big theological principles or big, sorry, it's really, it's, it's really hard to nail down minor theological quibbles that Milton may or may not have had. Um, um, anyway. Yeah. But um, by far for your, for listeners and for people who are just getting into Milton, the biggest hurdle that you will have to get over if you start doing your own research and Googling around and reading about Milton is you pretty quickly come into that, I like to call it the romantic fandom, like the, the romantics, like, you know, Mary Shelley and, and, and Percy Shelley and uh, Coleridge, they all absorbed Milton into their romantic movement and saw Satan as this real hero. And most of the academic literature out there has those two things so closely intertwined, right? That, that, um, that when you get into Milton, you're also going to be getting into a movement that came 200 years after Milton. And, um, and I don't think that's fair. I don't mm. think that's fair to Milton. And, and that's why I think Lewis's preface is such a good handmaiden to have. Mm. Yeah. I think my first serious look at Paradise Lost was when we were doing The Great Divorce, because that was yeah. a response to Blake. And Blake's mm. inspiration came from Paradise Lost and the question of Satan. And I don't understand Blake at all, so I don't even know what he was trying to say. Uh, yeah. um, but it was very interesting to, to see the way in which an entire group of people had interpreted Milton, and that became the dominant interpretation because they did. They, because they read it that way, everybody else yeah. has. 
Yeah, we, we did an episode on this on classical stuff talking about um, Satan and, and sympathy and romanticism. And the thing that sort of kicked it off for me is that if you go, I'm pretty sure if you go to the, I think Dartmouth has a, a, a Milton school or has a Milton department. And if you go to the, I think it's Dartmouth, if you go to the Dartmouth homepage of the Milton department, the banner art is Blake. Uh, because Blake did all this banner, did all this like uh, crazy Blake art about 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 Milton, but uh, Blake sort of took what Milton did and spun his own sort of uh, um, symbolic uh, allegorical reading of it, and that has become very dominant. So you know you get these these things where it's like when you're talking about Satan, you're actually talking about modern enlightened man. And when you're talking about God, you're talking about sort of the old governments of the middle ages who have the, who, you know, derive their law from, uh, from tradition. And like Blake has this whole allegorical symbolism that became sort of the dominant reading. I was trying to think of before I was coming on the show, I was like, okay, I, I, I'm trying to think of like a modern example where the fandom of that thing has like, totally reimagined that thing to the point where you can no longer separate the original story from its fan base. I couldn't really come up with an example, but I'm sure maybe there's, maybe there's like some screaming obvious one or something. <laughs> uh, but it's, but that's basically what has happened, happened to Milton's paradise lost is so much so that when I was an undergrad, he was the first book in the romanticism unit. Hmm. Well, we've got a few minutes left, and I did just want to touch on the arguments that Milton presents in Paradise Lost. Sure. Say this is the theodicy, responding to the problem of pain, the the problem of suffering, and the problem of the fool. Why was it allowed? In broad strokes, and you can uh, you don't have to tell us everything because you can leave a little bit to encourage people to actually go read him, uh, or they can just go and look up the summary on Wikipedia. What answers does Milton give? How does he justify the ways of God to man? So um, the biggest one would be that um, Paradise Lost ends up being a big defense of the nature of free will. In book three, when Satan has... So book the, the, the book starts in the middle of the action where Satan has already fallen from heaven with one third of the heavenly angels. And they end up in hell. And they kind of wake up and they're like, all right, now what do we do? And they decide they're going to go destroy mankind. If they can't destroy God, they're going to go like wreck God's stuff. And so Satan is crawling out of chaos through the sort of like primordial chaotic world to get to earth. And some of the angels look down and they see Satan coming up and they're like, oh, that doesn't look good. And they go to God and they say, God, Satan has escaped hell and he's going to earth. And God says, I know he is going to tempt man. And mankind is going to hearken to his glozing lies, and they're going to fall. And then God has this big speech in book three where he gives a justification for why he's allowed mankind to fall based on free will. And then God says, and here's what we're going to do about it. And then in there, the second part of the Trinity, Jesus says, I will go down and be made man, and I will go die for them. And, and that's right at the beginning. That's like sort of book three. So... Um, the first answer to the theodicy is that it is a, a big defense of free will, that when God creates the universe, if he is going to create a universe where relationships matter, or even to be more pointed, if he's going to create a universe where love means anything, 
it needs to be a love where people have the option to say, I don't love you, or have the option to say no to God. And so if, you want, if you're going to have a universe where you have an option to say no, uh, it's a universe of free will. And so when you do that, you've opened up the potential for, for sin. So that, that's for the fall or for basically saying to God, my will be done, not your will be done. And so that is, that, that's one defense. And then the other little thing that I can sort of um, maybe whet the appetite of readers is partway through the book, Satan realizes when he's out of hell, um, Satan gets to earth, he gets to Eden, and he's blown away of how beautiful it is. And he realizes that hell is not a place that he's just escaped from, but hell is a state that he carries around inside of him. And he says, myself am hell. Wherever I go, I cannot escape it. Like hell is part of me now. And Satan realizes this. Okay, so we have that reality, that hell is a state. And then at the end of the book, when I was talking about how um, Michael's got to come down to comfort Adam, (laughs) Michael tells Adam that paradise can also be a state. Paradise is a state. In fact, heaven can begin in the hearts of uh, man today. Just like how hell is a state of Satan, uh, you can carry around a paradise within you. And Michael says, only add deeds to thy wisdom answerable. Add faith, add wisdom, virtue, temperance, add love. By name to come call charity, the soul of all the rest. Then wilt thou not be loath to leave this paradise, but shalt possess a paradise within thee, happier far. So, At the beginning of the book, you have Satan realize that hell is in him. And at the end of the book, you have Michael standing up and saying that heaven can begin in the hearts of believers or in the hearts of people. And the the dividing line between that is if you sort of practice the classical virtues, if you practice prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance, and then the holy virtues of faith, hope, and love. So I guess those would be the two quick answers to the to, to the theodicy it's a defense of free will that a universe of love needs to have an option of no needs to have an option of go away god and apart with that uh or with that um and this is definitely a, a, a theme that lewis picks up that life temporal life is either the the beginning of hell or the beginning of heaven based on how that life is lived and, and the, he, I th- I'm pretty sure he makes that argument in in um, the Great Divorce hmm. that the characters who end up going off into like that tourist town <laughs> or go, end up going um, to uh, off by themselves in hell realize that the beginnings of that were started in in their life, and then the same thing with those who who follow and go up the mountain. Hmm. Um, that's definitely from Milton for sure. Totally. Yes. In Mere Christianity, he makes a lot about the question of free will. And the better mm-hmm. a creature is, the worse it can go wrong. And he points out that this is why we say that Satan is a fallen angel. And yes, as you were talking about the beginning of heaven, the beginning of hell, Lewis in The Great Divorce has a conversation with MacDonald when he asks, is hell a state of mind? And he says, yes, but heaven isn't quite the same. It's reality mm-hmm. itself. But mm-hmm. it's still the essential same idea that it begins inside of us and also works retrospectively, such that the damned say we were always in hell and the blessed say we were always in heaven. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and this is, this is what sort of the big thing that, that Michael gives to comfort Adam at the end is 
the Eden that you're getting kicked out of, just like how the hell that Satan escaped out of, you can carry that within you as long as you submit to God's law and practice the virtues. You get the beginnings of that. You can carry a paradise within thee. Um, he does say you carry a paradise within thee happier far, which really trips up my students because they're like, really? Happier, like far happier than in the Garden of Eden? Like mankind is f- more happy out in the wilderness practicing virtue than they were in the Garden of Eden. I'm like, all right, well, you know, we're going to you know, take that up with Milton. Take with um, yeah, so those are... But the thing, but to get to the, all of that, those sorts of things, you got to get through that language. And I know when, when Lewis talks about, you know, the, the things worth having are crappy at the beginning, like doing Greek um, mm-hmm. for the first time. Learning you don't the get grammar. the joy of having Greek. Yeah. Um, Milton is the exact same way. You're not, we, it's hard to get to the really sort of profound and beautiful passages in Milton until you really can wrap your hands around the difficult iambic pentameter. Well, Graham Donaldson, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, this was fun. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, I, I want to uh, hopefully let me know any sort of uh, people that email you and say like, oh, I read it and it sucks. Why, why, why Donaldson <laughs> tell me to read this? No, I want to hear about all the, uh, all the, the people that got into it. Will do. And as the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell us where people can find out more about you and your podcast, Classical Stuff You Should Know, and a little bit about what you talk about there? Our podcast is called Classical Stuff You Should Know. It's hosted by me, uh, Thomas Magby, and AJ Hannenberg. Uh, AJ and I both work at this at a classical school, high school out in Austin, Texas. Uh, Thomas worked there for a, a while and, and um, is off doing other things, but we talk about classical education. The type of education Milton had, the type of education Lewis had is predominantly you know, the kind of thing that we would say is more classical than maybe the progressive education I definitely had. So we talk about old books, old uh, old art. Um, we talk about philosophy. We call it classical stuff you should know, but we basically just kind of talk about whatever we want. Mm-hmm. Um, um, our most recent episode has been on the, the history of um, monetary eras. So like the gold, the era when we all used gold, the era when we all used um, sort of gold backed by paper and now sort of the fiat era that we live in. So um, if it's over 100 years old, we're probably going to be talking about it. If it's more recent than that, uh, we don't know if it's going to be classical. So we kind of <laughs> we kind of shy away from it. But you can find on any major um, uh, podcasting platform, classical stuff you should know. Yeah, And it's at classicalstuff.net. Yes, classicalstuff.net. Thanks again to Graham Donaldson for coming on the show. Thanks to our audio engineer, Taylor Schroll. Thanks to all of our listeners, patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Matt1, Matt2, Jake, Erica, Marvin, Joel, Deborah, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Spud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for you all every Tuesday and offer all of the prayer intentions from our Slack channel. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please pick up a copy of Paradise Lost and give it a go and send me a message and let me know how it went. So if we've learned anything today, it's that if you listen to one podcast with three grown men squabbling about stuff that most people don't care about, listen to Pints with Jack. But if you listen to two, listen to classical stuff you should know. And join us here next time when we'll continue going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.